ninth chapter of Romans again this morning, and we're talking about the sovereign plan of God, how God is the one who's making the choices in salvation, specifically in his sovereign plan of election. Paul is introducing us to the sovereignty of God to lay the foundation for all that is currently happening with the nation of Israel. The book of Romans, as we've seen in our studies, is primarily a discussion on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul made mention of this in his very introduction to the book, um, those introduction verses, the first several verses, and then after his intro, when we got to the theme of the letter, we read in chapter 1, verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the power of God unto salvation. No one is saved apart from the gospel. No one can come to know God, have a personal relationship with Him who hasn't believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this gospel pertains to everyone who believes. He said in that verse, to the Jew first, it was to Israel that Christ first came to the Jews and also to the Greek. The same gospel also applies to the Greek, to the Gentiles who come to Christ in faith. There's not a different gospel for Jew and Gentile. To us, we read this verse and it makes complete sense. Jews and Gentiles. In other words, everyone. There is, this is salvation offered without partiality to everyone. It doesn't matter who you are. You believe the same gospel. But this is really a remarkable statement, especially during the time period that Paul first made it, because prior to the time of the early church, salvation wasn't being offered to the Gentiles. God's plan wasn't including the Gentiles. God was only working through the nation of Israel, and we saw that when we started our study of Romans, back up uh, of Romans 9, back up in chapter 4 where Paul was talking about the Jews and his grief that he had over his kinsmen. And he said in verse 4 of chapter 9, "...who are the Israelites, to whom belong the adoptions as sons, and the glory, and the covenants, and the giving of the law, and the temple service, and the promises, whose are the fathers, and from whom is the Christ, according to the flesh, who is over all, God blessed forever." Amen. These are all the blessings that God bestowed upon men in the Old Testament. And these are all the blessings that belong to whom? To the Jews, not to the Gentiles. These were the things given to the nation of Israel. But now, he said right off the bat, back in the first chapter of this letter, who does salvation belong to? Jews and Greeks. To the Jews first and also to the Greek. Now, to those who are Jews, the very idea that God would offer something to them and also offer it to the Gentiles was unheard of. It was impossible for them to fathom. That's just not how it worked, and it hadn't been how it had worked. But now, this is what Paul says has happened. In fact, it wasn't a fluke or a mistake. Paul mentions this this impartiality again when we got into chapter 2. In verse 10 of chapter 2, he said, But glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. In this context, Paul was talking about how God will judge men by their deeds. Judgment is always carried out according to a person's actions. That's what is judged. Whether someone does good or evil. Of course, what is the only way that someone can truly do good? If he has been born again and given a new life in Christ through the gift of salvation. Only those who are justified will ever be found to do good. So if a Gentile is found to be one who does good, he will be the recipient of God's blessings, just as the Jew would be, because he has been saved. And that's affirmed in the very next verse in chapter 2, verse 11, when Paul simply says, for there is no partiality with God. Anyone who comes to him in faith, he shows no partiality towards them, regardless of whether they are Jew or Gentile. Now, why has this change been made? Why is there a difference? Why has salvation now come to the Gentiles when it was not first offered to them before? It's because of Israel's rejection of their Messiah. The very reason that Paul is giving 
that is giving Paul great sorrow and unceasing grief in his heart, which he mentioned up in verse 2 of chapter 9. That's what started off this entire section that we have from, verse, or from chapter 9 through chapter 11. The Jews have rejected their Messiah. They have rejected their blessings. And now God has turned his attention toward another people, not just the Jews. And this brings us to the situation that we have in Romans 9 through 11. Since the Jews rejected the gospel and it is now being offered to the Gentiles, the question has to be asked, is God done with the Jews? Is, is, is that line cut off? It could not have escaped the notice of anyone in the churches, even the church at Rome, that there were fewer Jews being saved and more and more Gentiles being saved. We've talked before about how the church at Rome was predominantly a Gentile church, even though Paul has sprinkled in references to the law and to the Jews throughout his discussions. But predominantly, this was a Gentile church. And so it would be natural for people to question what is going on with God's plans for Israel. What does this mean about the promises of God? Has the word of God failed in some way? Has Israel been rejected by God in favor of another group of people because of their sin? Or another way to ask it, has Israel's disobedience caused God to change his plan? You have to ask the question because from a certain standpoint, that appears to be the case. If you note that God has turned his attention towards another people and has turned his attention away from Israel, then it's easy to make that leap. It would have been easy back then, and it's been easy throughout church history. You look at the last 2,000 years, and people have been making that leap for 2,000 years. Especially today, when we look at churches, what do we see? We see, by and large, Gentiles. I'm not going to ask for a raising of hands, but I'm going to guess that there's only a handful of people in here that would have any type of Jewish heritage in their blood. So the natural tendency would be to think God is done with Israel. Unless, unless you take God at his word and recognize that he is sovereign over all. God made promises to the nation of Israel and he will keep those promises to the nation of Israel. His word to them has not failed and it has not been rendered void. And that was his point starting in verse 6 and following. He said in the very first part of verse 6, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. Paul brings up the point that God's word hasn't failed. And in these three chapters, he's showing why that is the case. In order to understand how God's word can still be in effect, how we can say that nothing has changed with his plan, we have to look at the sovereign plan of God in dealing with the nation of Israel. First off, Paul established that God chose some, but not all, right? He finished chapter, or he, he finished verse 6 by saying, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. Not everyone who was physically descended from the line of Jacob is part of the nation of promise. He gives two examples that show this. He talks about the sons of Abraham and he talks about the sons of Isaac. Promise from God was made to Abraham, what? That he would have descendants. But that didn't apply to every son that Abraham had. It applied to his one son, Isaac. Came down through the line of Isaac. The promise was then reiterated to Isaac. It was given to Isaac as well. But it didn't pertain to every son of Isaac, right? Isaac had twins, Esau and Jacob. Esau was born first. Jacob came out second. But the promise only came through Jacob. Then he goes on to talk about how this choice can be made. And it's simple, really. God makes these choices based on his good pleasure. He makes his choices based on what he wants. It's God's choice. From the ranks of sinful men, God has sovereignly decided to choose some for himself to show them mercy, which is exactly what he did with the nation of Israel. 
what had they done to deserve salvation any more than the Assyrians or the Babylonians or even the Americans, right? We all, we all understand we are not God's chosen nation. The United States is not God's chosen nation. Nothing at all. They hadn't done anything more. They hadn't done anything better than any of those other nations. It was God's decision, decision showing mercy and compassion on whom he wished. And the reason for choosing some, we saw this in verse 23, and he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. Remember our discussion from last time, how Paul uses the example of God being the potter, and the mass of humanity is the lump of clay, the same lump of clay, the sinful, depraved mass of humanity. We are the clay, and the potter had the right to make whatever he wanted out of the clay, and the clay does not speak back or have any say in what it's being used for. With some, he made vessels of wrath, common vessels, dishonorable vessels, vessels that are comprised of sinful people that live their lives in sin and never come to saving faith. They are ultimately destroyed. God did not make them sinful and depraved. He didn't cause them to be sinful and depraved. But he also does not call them to salvation. And they are therefore destined for what they deserve, wrath and destruction. On the other hand, as verse 23 tells us, there are also vessels of mercy. The vessels of mercy which God, the potter, prepared from the lump of sinful humanity for glory exist to make known the riches of of the glory of God. These are sinners that God decided in His sovereignty to show mercy, to call out from their sinful condition and save for Himself for His own glory. That was His right, according to His own choice to act in that way. And that is why the only way anyone can be saved is through His decision to save them. But we need to note here, and what's most critical to our study today, from which group did he choose, Jew or Gentile? And that's where we saw in verse 24. Even us, whom he also called, not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. And that is part of the plan. To choose not only from among the Jews, but also from among Gentiles. Now, how do the Gentiles fit in with this plan? That is what we'll begin to see in our passage today. This is really our first introduction to the involvement of the Gentiles in this chapter. Why? Because he's been dealing with Israel thus far. Here he is talking to this predominantly Gentile church, talking to them about Israel, and now he finally, down in the last verses of this chapter, gets to talking about Israel them, about the Gentiles. In the final verses in this chapter, he's going to further show the sovereignty of God in his dealings with both Jews and Gentiles. And to do so, he'll use two series of Old Testament quotes to show that what is happening with Israel is not unexpected, and it is not inconsistent with God's plan. Now look with me at how he continues in verse 25. And he says also, as he says also in Hosea, I will call those who are not my people, my people, and her who was not beloved, beloved. And it shall be that in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God. So Paul here uses a very loose quotation from the prophet Hosea to make a point here. He presents it as one quote, but it's really taken from a couple of different places talking about those who weren't his people now being his people, those who weren't beloved now being beloved, now being the sons of the living God. This is a quote from the first two chapters of Hosea. And to understand the context of this, let's go back to Hosea. I want to look at what we have in Hosea chapter 1. So go ahead and turn back to Hosea with me. It's the first book of the Minor Prophets, so find Daniel. If you can find Daniel, it's the next book over from Daniel. In Hosea, as with most of the prophetical books, 
God is pronouncing judgment on whom? On Israel. And it's important that we remember that. The judgment and these words that Hosea is to relate are meant for the nation of Israel. And it's important to note that everyone agrees that Hosea's prophecy is meant for the nation of Israel. You look at Hosea, who's he writing to? He's writing to Israel. Now, this judgment is going to have a very personal flavor for Hosea, what he's been given, if you're familiar with Hosea, because it's going to be an object lesson. The Lord is going to command Hosea to do certain things and will have a direct relationship to the condition that Israel finds itself in. And verse 1 lets us know the time frame for when this was written. This is prior to the Assyrian captivity of the northern tribes. But look at verse 2 of Hosea 1. It says, When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take to yourself a wife of harlotry and have children of harlotry. For the land commits flagrant harlotry, forsaking the Lord. So you see what's happening here. Israel has played the harlot against God, which is really not anything new if you're familiar with the history of Israel. It's very common. The picture is of Israel being the wife of Jehovah, the wife of God who has been unfaithful, committing these acts against him. But now God is going to discipline them for that. He's going to bring judgment on them for that. And so he has Hosea represent the same situation in his own life. Therefore, he has Hosea take a wife of harlotry to provide an example of what is to come for Israel. He marries Gomer, who's an immoral woman, a prostitute. Just as Israel has been unfaithful to the Lord, this woman proves to be unfaithful to Hosea. And so she bears him children, and this gets very interesting here if you're not familiar with Hosea, because each of the names of his three children are going to prove to be judgmental upon the nation. Hosea's children's names are going to show the judgment that God is going to bring on the nation. Wouldn't you love to be a kid in that family? Verse 3, so he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Deblame, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, Name him Jezreel for yet a little while, and I will punish the house of Jehu for the bloodshed of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. So the first child that's born is named Jezreel. And the name Jezreel means God will scatter or God will sow, as in seed, sowing seed. And this is the first judgment that God will bring upon Israel, scattering them as a people brought about through the nations that conquered them. And this judgment begins very shortly afterward with the Assyrians coming to capture the northern tribes. And if you're aware of this Assyrian captivity, one of the things that they did when they conquered people was they would conquer them and then they would scatter them among their nations so that they wouldn't all be together. They would be scattered and have to integrate in with the Assyrians. Now in verse 6, there's a second child born. So that's the first child. Second child born, verse 6 says, Then she conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. And the Lord said to him, Name her Lo-Ruhamah, for I will no longer have compassion on the house of Israel, that I would ever forgive them. So now you have Lo-Ruhamah, a little girl, not pitied or not worthy of compassion is what her name means. God will not have compassion on them. Interesting to take this concept along with what we've seen in Romans chapter 9, on whom God will or will not have compassion, right? It's his choice. Here, the name indicates the fact that he will not have compassion on them. And now look down at verse 8, where we see the third child. When she had weaned Lo-Ruhamah, she conceived and gave birth to a son. And the Lord said, Name him Lo-Ami, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. So Hosea's wife has another son, Loami, which is a name that means not my people. God has rejected Israel so that they are no longer considered his people. So what do we have? We've got the three children, right, that represent what's going on. We have the people scattered. We have them not shown mercy or compassion. And we have them considered to not be the people of God. Now, wait a minute. I thought we were talking about how he had not rejected them. I thought we were talking about how God still considers them to be his chosen nation. 
Haven't we been talking about that in Romans 9? Haven't we said how God's word has not failed? How he is still going to save Israel? How they are still his people? Yes, we have. We've been talking about all that. So how does this fit with that? The key to understanding this is in the rest of Hosea. We haven't seen it all. We're not done. It doesn't end here in chapter 1. Israel is rejected as God's people. God allows other nations to come in and scatter them, and he treats them as if they are not his people. But this isn't a permanent rejection, which is where we get the wording of the verses that Paul paraphrases. Like I said earlier, Paul really paraphrases from two different places here in Hosea, and we'll take a look at both. But first, read on in chapter 1. Look at verse 10. Here it says, Yet the number of the sons of Israel will be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it is said to them, You are not my people, it will be said to them, You are the sons of the living God. So you see here, immediately after telling them that they will not be his people, he then proceeds to promise them restoration as his people. You can't separate the two here because they are both here. They are tied together. There's judgment, but there's also restoration. So while it is true that Israel is rejected and not considered the people of God, this is not a permanent rejection. It is one in which they will be restored to God in the future. And at that point in time, which we'll talk about in future studies, is when God establishes his kingdom here on earth. Now look also over at chapter 2. The first 13 verses of chapter 2 are all about the sins and the judgments against Israel. And then starting in verse 14, we read once again about restoration. It talks about judgment and sin, and then we start to see restoration starting in verse 14. But look down at verse 23. And here again, we see that rejection is not permanent for them. Because it says here in verse 23 of chapter 2, I will sow her for myself in the land. I will also have compassion on her who had not obtained compassion. And I will say to those who are not my people, you are my people. And they will say, you are my God. Now again, this is speaking about Israel. This is the nation of Israel. We have not changed the subject here. It was Israel who was rejected. It is Israel who will be restored. We need to keep that very clear. In speaking about Israel, God actually uses the children of Hosea as an example of what is to come. And I find this extremely fascinating. You remember the first child, Jezreel. God will sow. Now he says, I will sow her for myself in the land. So again, he's using that reference to that name. Remember the second child, Loruhamah, who was not worthy of compassion. He says here, I will also have compassion on her who had not obtained compassion. And then there's little Loami, not my people. I will say to those who were not my people, you are my people. All of their names here are used again, this time to show the sowing of the people in the land, the mercy that he will show to them, and the fact that they are his people. Again, while there is judgment on the nation, the restoration of Israel is promised. It is guaranteed here, and that promise is given to God's chosen nation. So the fact that Israel is promised to be restored shows something. It shows that their current state of being rejected, of God having turned away from them, isn't unexpected. And it's not a change in the plan of God. It was prophesied from before. This is the state in which they were in as Paul was writing to the Romans. And it's still the state that they're in today. I know it's been 2,000 years since Paul wrote Romans. But that state of rejection that they were in then is the same state that they've been in for that entire 2,000-year period. And even from before that, it goes back to the Babylonian captivity. Even as Paul wrote about it back then, his words concerning their condition are still current even for us today. So they were told that there would be rejection and then restoration would come after that time of rejection. This is God's promise to them. This is his word to them. 
So turn back with me to Romans chapter 9. So the question is, how does this fit in with our passage in Romans 9? How does the quote from Hosea fit with the context that Paul is just talking about? What he's just said in verse 24. We'll read verse 24 again. Remember, he's talking about the vessels that God prepared beforehand for glory. He said, even us whom he also called, not from among Jews only, but also from among the Gentiles. And these vessels that God prepared, they come from two distinct groups, Jews and Gentiles. How do they fit together? And how does the fact that God rejected Israel and promised to restore them account for salvation coming to the Gentiles? How does it account for the fact that the gospel was first offered to the Jews, but then also to the Gentiles? The key to this is in the point that Paul is making here. He's not so much interested in talking about how the Gentiles fit in. He will mention that. We will get to that. But he's trying to communicate how the Jews are being dealt with today. And to show that their current present condition is consistent with what God said in the past. God's word has not failed. In fact, it's right on track. He is right on schedule. What do I mean by that? Well, look at Hosea. God said that they would be scattered among the nations, shown no mercy, and treated as if they were not his people. What's going on with them today? That, that exact thing. This is the judgment of God upon them. That's what's going on today. That's what the Roman believers were seeing with them as well. And this is why Paul was out witnessing to the Gentiles, which we'll talk about more when we get into chapter 11. But in his sovereign plan, that will someday change, which Paul indicates here with these quotes. They will be his people. They will be beloved again. They will be called the sons of the living God. This prophecy from Hosea is a prophecy to the nation of Israel, and it's a prophecy that will be fulfilled with the nation of Israel. And I stress this point because this passage causes a lot of confusion. Confusion because many people want to say that Paul is applying this to the Gentiles or to the church in place of Israel. And that's where we get into, we talked about it a few weeks ago, supersessionism, replacement theology. They'll say, since he introduced the Gentiles in verse 24, then his reference to people who weren't his people, now being his people, he's talking about the Gentiles coming in in place of Israel. But that's not what's going on here. It can't be, because when you go back to Hosea, it's clear that these words were meant for the nation of Israel. I mentioned that earlier when we were in Hosea, and every commentator agrees that when these words were spoken, they were meant for Israel as a nation. But then many commentators want to go ahead and say that now, in this context, they don't apply to Israel anymore. They apply to the church. They apply to Gentiles, and it's not to Israel. But that's not what's happening here. They want to take the blessings They want to take the restoration part of what we saw in Hosea and apply that to Gentiles in the church, but leave the judgment part of what we saw in Hosea out and say, well, that still applies to the nation of Israel. So the judgment applies to Israel, but the blessings apply to us. And they would say the judgment part's for them, but the restoration of the blessings had now been given to others, the Gentiles that comprise the church. And in doing so, they want to now reinterpret the Old Testament prophecy through the New Testament. Marsha? I should have a fix on this, and maybe others have the question too, but when is that restoration, just for my mind, so we know what we're getting up, is it... When is the restoration? Is it millennium, or is it... It is at the... So they'll go through the tribulation period, which starts God's plan with Israel again, at the... After the rapture... So we've got right now, we're in the time of the Gentiles. Um, The fullness of the Gentiles will come in at the rapture. And then the 70th week of Daniel starts with the tribulation. And that's the part we're talking about in the next hour, right? Josh going through Revelation. So that's where the plan shifts to Israel again. Now, through the tribulation, the plan is focused on them. But the restoration won't come until the end of the tribulation when the kingdom is brought in. Yeah. Yeah. 
So that's the, that's the point in time we'll talk about. When we get to chapter 11, we'll talk a lot more about that stuff. So that's why, again, everybody's reading through, the, reading through these chapters, right? So you'll see this, the shift when we get to chapter 11 here. So let's see. You can't pick and choose parts of prophecies to apply to the church, apply all the blessings to the church, but then leave the judgments to Israel. It's either all or nothing. If you're going to say, as many do today, that the portion of Hosea's prophecy that Paul is using here now applies to the church, then you'd have to go back and say, well, why, why don't the judgments apply to us then as well? But they don't say that. But then some would say, well, I'm not the one saying it, though. People would say, well, Paul's the one that's saying it. Paul's the one that's using it this way. So it's not me. It's really then God that's reapplying this passage here to the Gentiles. But that can't be the case either because of what the premise for this whole passage was back up in verse 6. It is not as though the word of God has failed. Paul's premise throughout this chapter to this point is to show that God's word has not failed. It is still in effect just as he gave it concerning the nation of Israel. It hasn't changed. And he's showing why it hasn't changed. From the promises given to Abraham, to Jacob, to Moses, to the consistent way in which he has always acted with his creation, even to the very promises that he gave to Israel through the prophets Hosea, and we'll see here in just a minute, even through Isaiah. God's word has not changed or failed at all. He is still on track to fulfill his promises with Israel, even in light of the fact that salvation has now been offered to someone else, and when we get to chapter 11, we'll talk about why. We'll get into more details of that as well. But the, the, that fact is simply a reminder that God's word is in effect and it is still holding true. So these two verses are not talking about Gentiles now being called God's people. Just because he mentions Gentiles in verse 24, it does not mean that he's taken us off on that tangent to deal with the Gentiles replacing the Jews permanently. He's using these verses to refer to the consistency of God's plan with Israel, the immutability of that plan. It is not outside of God's plan for Israel to not currently be the focus of his working of salvation in the world. And it's not at all unusual for Gentiles to be offered the gift of salvation that Israel, during the time that they have rejected it. Now, in verse 27, he continues on with another Old Testament quote. This time, I mentioned before, from Isaiah. And this one brings a little more clarity to it. Verse 27 says, Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be like the sand of the sea, it is the remnant that will be saved. For the Lord will execute his word on the earth thoroughly and quickly. And just as Isaiah foretold, unless the Lord of Sabaoth had left to us a posterity, we would have become like Sodom and would have resembled Gomorrah. Here we get a glimpse, again, into the current working of God's plans for Israel. And once again, how it is consistent with what God has revealed before, this time through the prophet Isaiah. Paul starts off by saying, Isaiah cries out, very heartfelt cry, one that is usually accompanied uh, with great emotions of fear or pain. And this is similar to what Paul said was going on with himself, the, the, the sorrow that he had, the anguish he had over the nation of Israel. The prophet is in sorrow over his people. Why? Because, of the, because out of the entire nation of Israel, a number like the sand of the sea, only a remnant is going to be saved. Isaiah understood this, understood that not all of Israel was going to be saved. When it talks about Israel, it's not talking about every single physical descendant of Israel, just like we saw earlier in the chapter. Because that's what his prophecy in Isaiah 10 is talking about in verses 20 through 23. So let's go back to Isaiah now, Isaiah chapter 10. We looked at Hosea, we'll look at Isaiah 2. And we'll see the context of what Paul is quoting here. Isaiah 10, if you look down in verse 20. What? 10. Isaiah 10. 
Look down at verse 20 of Isaiah 10. Now on that day, the remnant of Israel and those of the house of Jacob who have escaped will never again rely on the one who struck them, but will, rely, will truly rely on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. And so you see here the reference to a remnant is key. And this is what we've been talking about in Romans 9. Not every descendant of Israel is a part of the true nation of Israel. Only the remnant of Israel is what we're talking about. It's the remnant that God had placed his mercy on, sovereignly chosen for salvation. You could look just as an example. Jacob would be part of the remnant, and not Esau. Just the, the, the line down from Jacob. From the nation of Israel, they will truly rely on the Lord. Look at verse 21. It says, a remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. For though your people, O Israel, may be like the sand of the sea, only a remnant within them will return. A destruction is determined, overflowing with righteousness. For a complete destruction, one that is decreed, the Lord God of hosts will execute in the midst of the whole land. You see, God told them that it would be this way. He told them in very clear language that not all of the nation would be saved but that many would be destroyed. The Lord of hosts is the Lord of Sabaoth, as Paul mentions in uh, Romans 9.29. He commands the hosts of heaven. From that judgment upon the nation, the destruction that comes upon the nation, only a remnant of Jacob would return to be saved. So Hosea talked about the restoration of Israel, just as complete. It sounds like a complete nation. Isaiah here narrows that down. It's not every single person in Israel. It's a remnant of Israel that will be saved. Should we be surprised today that God is not focused on Israel or that they have rejected the truth of the gospel that has come through their own Messiah? No. That's a part of what God said would happen. He's been saying this for years. He told them this for years through many of the different prophets. The majority have been determined for destruction. While we're in Isaiah, come back to chapter 1. This is another part of Paul's quote. Back in chapter 1, um, verse 9 is the part that Paul quotes in verse 29 of Romans 9. He says in Isaiah 1, 9, Unless the Lord of hosts had left us a few survivors, we would be like Sodom, we would be like Gomorrah. Once again, we see the Lord of hosts reference, the Lord of Sabaoth. If he hadn't left a posterity, a seed, a few survivors, Israel would be like Sodom and Gomorrah. What happened to Sodom and Gomorrah? Destroyed, right? Completely destroyed. Do you know what the difference was between Israel and Sodom and Gomorrah? God's choice. That's it. God's choice of them. You read through Israel's history. And you can find many of the same sins among her people that you found in those two cities. In our discipleship group a few months ago, we went through the book of Ezekiel. Have you ever read through Ezekiel in a detailed way? It's kind of depressing, really. It's kind of a depressing book. It's a hard book to go through. You go through chapter after chapter of Israel's sin. All that they've done and what God's judgment on them is going to be. And then you get to the last chapters of the book and you finally get to see the restoration. The same things we're talking about here. But there are a lot of vile things that are laid bare about Israel in those books of prophecy and in the history books. Israel throughout their history didn't have any room to brag when it came to morality or their own sense of righteousness. But the difference is that God sovereignly chose to show mercy to Israel and to save this remnant among them. God has chosen to save a remnant out of his people who have rejected him time and time again and who are rejecting him even today. And it's truly remarkable. This manifestation of the mercy of God, this shows the sovereign control of God over his entire creation. This is the plan of God. This is how we know that God will save Israel, that God is not done with Israel. What we see today with Gentiles being offered the gospel and Israel being cut off is all a part of God's sovereign plan. So as we come to verse 30, 
we see Paul drawing us into the next section, having reaffirmed the certainty of Israel's place in God's plans, he's going to begin to bring in the role of the Gentiles into all this, which he referred to back in verse 24. So he starts off, what shall we say then? The rhetorical question, drawing a conclusion from what has just been declared. Where does this get us? So what do we say now? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith. In God's sovereign plan for Israel, they are rejected for a time. That's what Hosea showed us. And now, during this time of their rejection, the gospel is being presented to whom? To Gentiles. Starting in verse 30, we have a shift in perspective. We start to see now man's responsibility, a shift in responsibility. Up until this point, we have seen how God is at work. That has laid the foundation for everything that we've seen to this point. But now, starting in verse 30 and following, we have the actions that mankind is responsible for. God hardens the sinner, yet the sinner is responsible for his own sin. God is the one who elects, calls, and justifies the sinner out of that lump, yet I am responsible for believing in him. It is this melding of the two responsibilities where one ends and the other begins that is difficult for us to grasp. It's hard for us to understand. And I'd be lying if I told you that I understood it completely, where one begins and the other ends. And yet, beginning here in Romans 9, we have it presented to us. Both here are apparent. We see them. So the first thing that we see here in verse 30 is that Gentiles are now being saved. There are two main words used here that we should take note of. They're the key difference makers. Righteousness and faith. Why are the Gentiles now considered to be righteous before God? Because of faith. Because of their faith. Now, how does all that work? Go back to Romans chapter 4. We saw all that back in chapter 4, the end part of chapter 3 in Romans chapter 4. Remember, our building blocks throughout the book of Romans. We've built it all the way up to this point. So when you talk about righteousness and faith, ah, I remember Romans chapter 3 and Romans chapter 4. It was back in chapter 4 that Paul made it very clear that men and women are declared to be righteous through faith in the gospel and only through faith. That is what has happened to the Gentiles. They had attained righteousness even though they did not pursue righteousness. And that simply means that the Gentile nations weren't actively seeking to become children of God. It's not like Israel was in the way and all the Gentile nations were like, well, if they ever, if they ever get out of the way, I'm going to get in there. I want to I know God. That's not what they were doing. But God made his gospel available to them. It means that the Gentile nations weren't actively seeking to become his children, but God made the gospel available to them. He presented it to them. The offer came to them anyway. Does that seem strange? That he would go after nations that had no interest in him? Not really when you think about it, because how did God first choose Israel? Abram wasn't seeking after God when God told him to pick up his things and move. Abram was an idol worshiper. Abram was from a family of idol worshipers. And God picked this one guy and said, you're my guy. Go where I, go where I tell you to go. God chose him anyway. This goes back to his sovereign plan again. And God's choosing to turn his attention away from Israel and toward the Gentiles to provide salvation to them wasn't because of anything the Gentiles had done or even because they were asking for it, right? Once again, we go back to verse 16 of chapter 9. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. It was God's choice to provide it to them, and they accepted it, they believed it, and attained righteousness through it, just as God planned, those that he called out of those nations. And that's not to say that every Gentile is saved. That's not what we're saying here at all. But the gospel that was first given to the Jews, which was rejected, is the same gospel that is now being offered to the Gentiles. And if you look around today, the church is comprised mostly of Gentiles. You can't deny that. Are there some Jews being saved today? Yes, sure there are. But they're the minority. They're the remnant of the Jews as a whole. 
You could say that of the Gentiles that are being saved, there's only a remnant saved too. It's not every Gentile that's being saved. Just a small subset of people. But within the church, universally, you're going to find many more Gentiles than Jews today. The Gentiles who are coming to righteousness based on faith. So what's the difference? Why aren't the Jews being saved, right? So the salvation was coming to the Gentiles, right? Then they're coming to saving faith. They weren't pursuing it. Well, what's the difference? Well, look at verse 31. Paul addresses this. But Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Israel, on the other hand, was pursuing a law of righteousness. At least they thought of it what, as they thought of it. What we see here is that Israel was pursuing the law as if it could lead them to righteousness, which it could never do. The law in and of itself was righteous. We've talked about this before, too, in our studies. The law of God showed God's standard of righteousness. Back in chapter 7, verse 12, So then the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. There was nothing wrong with the law. Anyone that could keep the law perfectly would be perfect, but only someone who was perfect could keep it. No one was perfect. Only Jesus Christ could keep it perfectly. He was the only one perfect. That was the problem. No one was righteous, and so no one besides Christ could keep it. So the problem wasn't with the law. It was never a problem with the law. The problem was with us, with man, with the Jews. The law could not make a man righteous because only a righteous man could keep the law. The Jews couldn't attain to the law. Their pursuit wasn't getting them anywhere. Therefore, their pursuit wasn't bringing them to the righteousness that they were seeking. They were seeking it in the wrong way. So on the one hand, you have the Gentiles who weren't pursuing righteousness, but through God's sovereignty, he offered it to them, they attained it. And on the other hand, you have the Jews who were pursuing it, but they didn't attain it. And why didn't they attain it? Well, look at verse 32. That's what Paul asks and answers there. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as, if, but as though it were by works. Instead of seeking the righteousness of God as he had intended, always intended, by faith, they were pursuing it by works. They were working for that righteousness. They had it backwards. Righteousness has never been attained by works of any kind. Good works are produced by a righteous life, and righteousness is attained by faith. They took the law, which was meant to be a guide, a tutor to lead them to faith, and they turned it into a works-based system. And that was never God's intention for the law. We've seen all of this before in our Roman study. We've come through all of this as we've come through here. So this shouldn't be anything new to us. This is exactly what Paul was talking about back in chapter 3. When, when we transitioned from the first section dealing with man's sin to the next section on justification. And, and if you want to flip back there, chapter 3 verse 20 said, Because by the works of the law no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. That's how he ended that first section, talking about the sinfulness, the, the depravity of man. Works of the law, no flesh are justified. But then in the very next verse, verse 21, But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. Works of the law did not provide justification. Faith in Jesus Christ in his work on the cross was what brought God's righteousness to bear on those who believe. That is justification by faith. The last part of verses 32 and 33, back in chapter 9, show us their biggest obstacle in believing. It says, They stumbled over the stumbling stone, just as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. They were so intent on making their own righteousness based on the law that when Christ came, when their Messiah was given to them, he became a stumbling block to them. They had created their own worship system. 
which no longer even resembled the one that God had established for them and had built up their own expectations to the point that when the very thing that they were supposedly anxiously awaiting for for so many years finally came, he was in their way. They tripped over him. They stumbled over him. Was this an accident? Was this a wrench in God's plans? No, because Isaiah had prophesied this years before that when the Messiah came, he would cause them to stumble and he would offend them. But anyone who believed in him wouldn't be disappointed, wouldn't be put to shame. Those that have the opportunity to believe and don't reject that opportunity. There is shame in that. They should know better. Anyone that hears the gospel should know better. The Jews who had all these advantages should have known better. With every opportunity or blessing that they had received, they should have known better. But instead, they brought shame upon themselves. They brought disappointment upon themselves. But the good news is that for anyone, both Jew and Gentile, whoever believes in the gospel of Jesus Christ, will not be disappointed. And Paul will get into that in the next chapter. So what's our responsibility with this today? To respond to the gospel in faith. If anyone here, and I pray I'm preaching to the choir here, but if anyone here has never accepted the gospel of Christ, if you have a burden on your heart to heed the gospel, to cry out to God for salvation, there's, better, there's no better time than right now. But what about election? What if I'm not elect? You know what? Those things are not in our control. We can't do anything about that. But God has told us, right here in Romans chapter 9, that anyone who believes in him will not be disappointed. Someone who is an elect won't have that burden on their heart. I can't stand here and say to you that I know exactly how these things all work together, but I'm confident that it does, because God's word says that it does, and his word never fails. What I do know is that it is our responsibility to believe, to put our faith and trust in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The message of the gospel has been given to every man and woman on earth. And if we do not believe it, then we are fooling ourselves if we think that we can attain salvation in some other way. There is no other way than coming to righteousness through faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And if we have already come to faith, which I pray that each and every one of us here has, if so, then it is our responsibility to be carrying the word of the cross to those who haven't so that God will be glorified through us and through them as well. Let's close in a word of prayer this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you once again. We thank you for this time that we have here together. Thank you for your word. We thank you for your sovereign plans, Lord. We thank you for the way that you have worked with your creation, that you've worked through the nation of Israel, and that you are working through the church. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to uh, just be bold in our witnessing to others, Lord, presenting the gospel to them. We know, Lord, that, that you have offered the gospel, that, that, that your sacrifice, Lord, is, is, is available. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to just be communicating that to the world. We thank you, Lord, for uh, the time that we have together each and every week. We pray, Lord, that you would be with us now as we go into the next hour. As we worship you there, we pray, Lord, that that would be a time that would bring glory and honor to you. We pray, Lord, that we would have fellowship with one another, that we would edify one another, Lord, and that as we leave here today, we would be encouraged and that we would be strengthened, Lord, to go out and serve you. And Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.